Let's see if this resonates. You've got a job, and you like this job. You worked really hard to get this job. In fact, you went to school for a really long time. The job pays you really well. It's respected, highly respected in culture, and it supports your family, your family of maybe one kid, or in the story I'm going to share with you today, how about four kids? The story is of Amy Nelson, and Amy is the founder of The Riveter. If you don't know what The Riveter is, The Riveter is... Uh, it's a community of like-minded women and their allies. It's a community workspace, and it has shops in various cities around the country. And in this episode, we hear from Amy in an incredible detail. She's an amazing storyteller. We hear in great detail the transition from a once very stable, respectable job that wasn't actually fulfilling her as soon as she tapped into what she knew she needed to be doing. Uh, a couple other things about Amy. She's a graduate of NYU. Um, as I mentioned, she worked in politics under several presidents and founded The Riveter while pregnant with her third daughter and a couple years later had her fourth. This is true. And in, boy, uh, I think they just raised their Series A. Um, you know, WeWork has had some of its challenges recently, but the growth of The Riveter even outpaces WeWork's early growth. And this is in a sustainable way around community and content and benefits for the members uh, across the country. So this is a story of... Uh, it's a real life story, and I know you're going to connect with Amy. I can't wait to share with you uh, her story and transitioning into the life of her dreams. So before we get into this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, just a super quick word from our sponsor. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I got a favor to ask. I've got a new book out. It's called Creative Calling. And of course, I would love for you to pick up a copy or two or ten but here's why. This is not about a transaction. Of course, I want to sell as many books as I can, but this isn't about my bank account or the publisher. This is about a message and a movement. This is about the fact that there's creativity inside of every person and that if we understand that we each can harness this creativity and use it to channel uh, our, our creativity, not just to make things on a daily basis, yes, that's valuable, but to be able to create the living life that we want for ourselves and ideally for those around us. And right now, everyone has someone in their life who either doesn't identify as a creator or for whom they could use a bump, a nudge, a little bit of a push around their creative calling in life. And it's my hope that this book, I put everything I have into this book, everything. And if you could help me be the messenger for this by delivering them a copy of the book, um, picking up a copy uh, yourself, and of course, sharing that you are reading this book um, with your audience, that would mean everything to me. It's so important that we rally as a community around the ideas that we believe in, and this is my ask to you. So thank you very much. And now, okay, now let's get into today's episode. Yay! Welcome. <laughs> Thanks so, for having me. So happy to have you here. So excited to be here. Ah, this has been some time in the making. So thank you for for showing up. Uh, I'm hoping that we get a handful of things out of today's conversation. One, your view on the future of working women and allies, mm -hmm. of course, which is the company, uh, the Riveter. Two, I've got some questions about um, the future of work. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of people in our universe here who are creators and entrepreneurs and 
whether their future is a side hustle, a hobby, or they want to change careers. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very big area of interest for our, our listeners. And then third is just a personal rehashing of our friend circle. I think we, <laughs> so we're going to do it in reverse order, okay? There's so much overlap. That's right. There yeah. is. There is. Um, I remember the first time we met, I bumped into a friend of mine uh, boarding the plane. Her name is Carrie. I was yes. like, Carrie, what? She's like, what are you doing, Chase? And and you guys sat right behind me. Yep. And we were what I on what I call the nerd bird, <laughs> which is the flights that connect San Francisco and Seattle because there's a lot of uh, tech investor uh, entrepreneur, founder, nerds that are on that um, that flight. I was on that flight yesterday. You were. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Times have not changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was familiar with the Riveter, and I knew that my friend Carrie had taken a job working with you as a CMO. And I just got to learn a lot about your business in a very in like a 15 minute. I think we were delayed, and we were sitting yeah. there talking. And I was so inspired, and since then, that was when you were trying to raise your, I think, your first round of funding, and now you're two rounds in, yeah. um, and you've covered a lot of ground. So We have covered a lot of ground in a short time. The Riveter is only two and a half years old, which feels <laughs> wild to me. Dog years, yeah, right? Yeah, it is dog years. Startup years are dog years. <laughs> um, but so let's go back to this former lawyer piece. Let's go back to the yeah. beginning. and maybe a little bit of history on leaving law. I know you spent some time in politics yeah, um, with the Obama administration and what led you as now mother of four. Yes, right? I have four daughters. Wow. I'm an overachiever in all areas. No, <laughs> I mean, I really, four, I have four little girls who are five, three, two, and seven months. So... Wow. I know. My head just exploded. Yeah. I'm an uncle to one child. <laughs> It's a lot, but it's kind of, for me, like with parenting, the bomb was really zero to one, like yeah. going from not being a parent to being a parent. Yeah. And then you just pile it on, which yeah. is sort of like a startup. Every, yeah, that's right. In many ways. Add a layer. But yeah. so help us, I, I mean, I've, I've signaled where I want to take the conversation, yeah. but let's go backwards and give me a little bit of color on why law, why leaving law, why yeah. politics, why leaving politics to yeah. start uh, the Riveter. Yeah, I was drawn to the law for a pretty specific reason. So I grew up with a mother who was a public school teacher, a father who was a small business owner, and they were, um, they weren't like progressive activists, but they were active in their community. Okay. It was always, they always showed up. They would go door to door during elections, you know, for the candidates they cared about. They did leadership activities in our small town in Ohio. Um, and so it was always for me that you showed up, you were part of the community around you, you mm-hmm. engaged. Um, and that led me to politics. Um, because I cared about issues that were relevant and that politicians can make change on. Yeah. Um, and so I started volunteering for political campaigns, and I interned at the State House in high school. And in college, I went to college in Atlanta, and Jimmy Carter still works in Atlanta. He has an organization called the Carter Center that focuses on peace and democracy around the world. And when you're at college in Atlanta, getting an internship at the Carter Center is like the holy grail uh, if you're involved in politics or kind of a political dork like I am. Like when I was a child, I read books about the presidents. Wow. Um, Still something I think about a lot. And uh, so I got an internship at the Carter Center um, through luck and grit, I think, and parlayed that into a full-time job. And so I worked at the Carter Center on elections around the world. So I was 20, 21, 22, going to Ethiopia and Jamaica and working on kind of peace, democracy, anti-corruption, elections. And it was was wild. Um, And I loved it. I loved it. 
I thought I was impacting change. The work was really hard. I was around brilliant people. Um, and it was adventurous, right, going all around the world doing this. And so I went to law school so that I could continue to work in international politics. I went to NYU, which had a focus in international law. Um, and that was really, I mean, I'd been to New York once for two days before I moved there. So that was a whole, that's a whole thing that I think about a lot. I remember when I moved to New York, I moved, I think, 48 hours before law school started. And I got into my apartment in the East Village and I like, I opened up like a map and I was like, how do I get to NYU? And I like highlighted it on the map. It was two streets over. I was going to say, if you're yeah. in the East Village, you're like, you're there <laughs> like, basically. Know, that like, is NYU. Right. Um, but uh, it was a great experience. I loved NYU. And it was an expensive experience. Um, and I think when I was 21 years old and I signed up for law school, I didn't think a lot about the cost of law school uh, and the very real cost, and I paid for it through loans and scholarships. Um, but I came out of law school with a lot of debt, and going back into international politics wasn't a reality for me in terms of paying off my loans. And so I marched all the way down to Wall Street and started with a big white shoe law firm on Wall Street. And that was in 2006. And in 2007, the world changed with the financial crisis. Yeah, of course. And I was a financial services litigator. And so that led me into this other really interesting piece of history. So for five Whoa. years, I lived the financial crisis every day. I was back and forth between New York and London and DC, which all sounds very glamorous, but was of course just like a shit grind. show. Yeah, total, <laughs> like, I mean, total it was, grind. Right. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot and I learned a lot. It was drinking from a fire hose mm. every day. You know, I didn't know what a derivative was in 2007. And then I could tell you all about these esoteric financial products um, inside and out over the next five years. And so, but we did things like preparing credit rating agencies for congressional testimony. Um, I mean, just really living what was happening yeah. then. And I loved it and I learned a lot and I knew it wasn't my passion. I remember on the eve of turning 30, I kind of took stock of my life. I was living in Chinatown, working at this big law firm, working a lot. Um, I had amazing friends, but my life in New York was really work or going out. Yeah. And I thought, if I turn 35 and if I turn 40 and this is my life, will I be happy? And the answer was no. And I think it can be really hard to just like take a hard pivot. Yeah. But it's also sometimes the only way to really change your circumstance. And I still now look ahead five years, 10 years. If I'm doing what I'm doing now or where I think what I'm doing now will lead me, will I be happy? The answer Re today is yes. So restate that because yeah. I was say it one more time. If I'm doing what I'm doing now or where this will take me. Yeah. So there's a little bit of yeah. projection in there. Like I'm on a path to go somewhere. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I look and I say if, if in five years or 10 years I'm doing what I'm doing today or I end up where my actions today will lead me, will I be happy? That's the question I ask myself every year. And today the answer is yes. And so I think the pivot I made when I left law into starting this company was the right thing. Did you manage to pay off your student debt <laughs> with your uh, time on Wall Street? Not quite, almost. Now, that's probably partly my fault in the way I spent money. <laughs> but you know, it's, um, but it's, I mean, it's real. Like I had a half tuition scholarship at NYU and I left law school with $150,000 in debt. There you go. It's wild. Yeah, it's, and, and that's not something. It's that is a whole topic. You know, if um, you know, that's one of the reasons that Creative Live will always have a free product. Mm -hmm. Never, never, not be able to get a lot of learning here. We've given away billions and billions and billions. I think it's more than three billion minutes of free learning. That's amazing. 
because specifically I also left graduate school with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. And it it took me, I think, like an hour to sign up to get that debt. Yeah. Like not very hard to get it, very so, hard to undo it. Completely. Yeah. Right. You did, and also I think I don't know how old you were when you went to graduate school, but I was twenty one when I made that decision. I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Right? And I, you know what, like I'm really glad I went to NYU. It was an incredible education and an incredible network. Um but I don't know. It's something you should think about. For sure. So at some point, you clearly made a decision like, and this is somewhere around your 30th birthday, you couldn't say yes to the question, would you be happy in five to 10 years doing the same thing or where it would lead me? So, and so I made that decision that I knew, you know, at the age of 30, I saw myself in New York at 35 or 40, big law, you know, a partner, and I didn't want to do it. And the thing at that point was at 30, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. I knew that at 30, I said, I want my heart to be more where it belongs. I want to find a way to do more in politics. And at the time, I was raising money for politicians I cared about. I had always kind of kept doing that. When I graduated from law school and knew I was going to work on Wall Street, I asked myself how I could stay involved in politics. And I said, well, I'm going to be around a lot of rich people. I'll learn how to raise money. Um, that was really how I thought of it. Um, and it turns out learning to raise money was an incredible skill because I learned to ask for something and I learned to hear no over and over and over again. And I learned that no today doesn't mean no always. And these are things that have made me such a better entrepreneur. Um, yeah. If I didn't have that skill, I don't know if I would be where I am today as a founder. Wow. Um, so ultimately when I was 30, I said, okay, I'm going to keep lawyering uh, and I want to do more politics. And so in my mind, what that necessitated was a move out of New York and back to the Midwest where I'm from. And I had spent my summers growing up, going to and then working at this camp in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. Um, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. One of my dearest friends is like, Boundary Waters, the biggest fan of all time. It like, is my I, favorite place I on Earth. I have never had a conversation <laughs> with him where he hasn't said Boundary Waters like five times. Because it is the best place on Earth. It is <laughs> okay. still my favorite place okay. in the entire world. Okay. And so um, I washed dishes up there. I was a lifeguard. I, you know, I was a canoe guide. Um, and so I wanted to move back to the Midwest. I wanted to keep lawyering, get more involved in politics, like run, maybe run for office. And mm -hmm. um, so I moved to Minneapolis. I knew at the time, I think like five or six people that lived there, but loved Minnesota, knew I would find home there. Um, and I joined the law firm where Amy Klobuchar had worked and Walter Mondale and got, got quickly involved in politics um, and loved it. And I was happy that I was there. I think I'd found a new, a new place to be. And I thought I was going toward where I wanted to be. And then I had a major curveball because I met this guy. Aha. Yes. Guys. This guy, Carl. Yes. Um, and I met Carl and he, six months after we met, got a job offer for a tech company named Amazon.com. And I've heard of it. <laughs> so we moved out to Seattle. Um, and that's where my life really changed. Uh, we got married and I became a mother. And for me, the day I got pregnant um, changed everything. Not because I knew I was going to be a mom. I was really excited about that. But, when, you know, it was kind of nine months out that that would happen. But when I told the people that I worked with I was pregnant, that's when my world just kind of changed on a dime. And I felt like everything I'd done up to that point as a lawyer, as a political fundraiser, just as a professional, was undershadowed or was overshadowed by the fact that I was now going to be a mom. The questions I got at work from my colleagues, from my bosses, were all about becoming a mother. 
and how I would handle pregnancy and how I would, if I would come back to work and would I want to travel? Would I want to go to trial? And I was like, of course I want to go to trial. It's basically the only interesting thing about being a lawyer. So it was really, you know, but all of these questions over and over and not really about my career, but about how motherhood would impact my career. Mm. And looking back Interesting, on, that's a subtle but very powerful distinction. It is, yeah. right? Like, and, it, and it's, I think a lot about it because what I've come to in thinking about it over these past five years is that I hadn't really thought a lot about the gender gap before that because I'd just been overachieving my way out of it. But if you become pregnant, it is this visible signal that no one can ignore and people don't. And there's no way to overachieve your way out of whatever th- people think of it. Wow. That's- yeah. Very, very profound. And I kept lawyering after I had my first daughter and after I had my second daughter. Um, so it was, you know, I left the law when my younger daughter was about six months. Um, and I worked really hard and I figured it out and I managed how to do it. But I also knew that things were different somehow for me, uh, regardless of my ambition. The way the world looked at me was somewhat different. And I remember. At that time, I was really seeking information and community and trying to talk to working moms. And I looked around my law firm, and I looked at my, my group and within my law firm, and I was like, oh my gosh, there actually are no working moms in this group. And it was like, how can this be possible? Because half of law school graduates are women and have been for literally decades. Wow. And then I, I kind of like, I went on the internet and I looked at my law firm in New York. And mind you, these are all great places to work, yeah. right? I, I loved the people I worked with. And I went up and looked at my law firm in New York, and I had started with a class of 40 attorneys, 20 men, 20 women. And I went on the website, and I was like, there's one woman left. And then I started really digging into it. And of course, I was like, how have I not noticed this before? Um, and I started reading. I started talking to people. And one of the things I did was read Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. It's an interesting book. There's you know, lots of opinions about it. But for me, what stuck with me very clearly is a footnote. I think it's footnote 92. And it says that 43% of highly trained professional women off-ramp after they have kids. And I read that footnote and I was like, that's not a footnote, that's the whole story. 43%? 43%. And I later looked up, I like went to the study and highly trained meant college graduates. So almost half of college graduates leave the workforce. Leave the workforce after they have kids. And I was like, why aren't we talking about this? Because this is the whole story. And if this is true, the system's completely broken. We all know it and we just accept it. And I think the reason we don't talk a lot about it is because I think that we think it's what people want. Like we think that women want to leave the workforce after mm-hmm. they have kids. I believe that a lot of women leave because it's death by a thousand paper cuts and because the system doesn't work. The system wasn't built for working moms. Yeah. And just like it very much wasn't built for working dads who want to be participatory in their children's lives. Yeah, clearly. And so. To me, that became kind of the thing I was really obsessed with. Like, this is a problem. I want to solve it. I believe it's solvable. How do you solve it? And for me, and as part of that journey, I was reaching this breaking point where it was like, well, I have to offer up because I cannot figure out a way how to make this work and where I believe I'm finding equity in the workplace. Um, I mean, I. I had gone in-house as an attorney and um, I was passed over for a promotion opportunity and I was told, like very literally, by another lawyer that it was because I just had a baby. Yeah. And I said, like, 
to myself, you know, if lawyers are saying this to one another, like, what the hell are other people saying? Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I thought of starting my own legal practice um, and working really with working women, like, you know, trying to find some kind of way into that field of the law. And I started going to classes on how to write a business plan, how to do your financial projections, because I'm super type A and don't have an MBA. And those classes were held in co-working spaces. So like WeWork or other co-working spaces. And in going to those classes, I was excited to talk to other women. Obviously, this was kind of like the central point of my life at that point. And um, I went to the classes and there weren't any women. And it was just, I was like, where are working women? Like, why can I not find these people? Yeah. I know they exist. Um, and I thought, I looked around the classes, around starting businesses, and I was in these spaces, once again, very much like the law firms I was at or the tech companies, they were built for men. And it was like, well, I guess once a woman is making choices about her career, like why is she going to spaces that are built for men? Thinking of men first. Why not choose to be around um, people where you feel like you belong or you find community? Belonging is radically important. Um, it allows us to speak up. It allows yeah. us to feel safe. It allows us to be brave if we feel safe. And in spaces that are built thinking of men first, men can find those things and women can't. And so I started talking to women across the country. Like, where do you go to find community? What did you do when you left corporate America to start a job? Um, how did you navigate if you stayed in corporate America? Uh, and kept coming back to the idea of community, um, which is super important to me and always has been. Like, I grew up in a house where my parents told us to show up for people around you, yeah. for your friends. I mean, my best friends are the people I've known since I was five. Like, they still are. <laughs> yeah, um, I love that. And <laughs> so my, I'm super close to my parents. And it's just like, I, it's the way that I was raised. And what I found is that women were very isolated in talking about work and experience in work, work and thinking about work. When we ran up against problems, we might text our friends, we might sit in silence trying to figure it out, but we didn't have anywhere to go to guide us in any real community around it. And ultimately, that's where I came up with the idea for The Riveter, was this idea of what if you built a modern union that considered how you move the needle for working women and that considered we can do this by working together with men as you, as you must, and sharing information and community and resources and time together uh, to solve the problem. And so that's how the Riveter came to be. But that's the Riveter in concept, not in actuality, because having a business idea <laughs> and thinking about it and, uh, and, and then actually making it a business yeah. where, where there's dollars and hours and people show up and you say that this is what I'm doing, like there's identity and all this stuff. So like, I wanna, I wanna go there next, but I wanna put yeah. a pin in that for just a second and retrace. So when you took these classes in spaces that were largely designed by men for men, mm -hmm. um, how did it make you feel? It made me feel like I was going from one world built for men to another world built for men. And it felt exhausting. And it felt very also unoriginal. Like, women are half the workforce. I mean, t we actually today are the majority of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think it would be that much of an ask to try to find or to build spaces that thought of even including women, let alone putting women first. Um, and you know, I, I know how to navigate spaces built for men. I worked on Wall Street, mm -hmm. which is largely male. Uh, but it doesn't mean I want to, right? At a certain yeah. point, you just get tired of fitting into other people's worlds and you would like to find a place in your own. So that's how you felt. 
or how you, yeah, I guess how you felt when the gap between when, what, how low did you feel like you had to feel about those spaces in order to inspire yourself to action? Was it like depression level, frustration and anxiety, or was it like, this is an opportunity? Like what, what, you know, I'm trying to get in the mind of the entrepreneur here. I think on the one hand, like, the reason I started seeking my own path in a different community had a lot to do with feeling like I didn't have an equal shot. I mean, I was told I didn't have an equal shot at the end of the day mm-hmm. where I was. And I felt angry. I was righteously angry. Like I was a good lawyer. I worked really hard for, for a long time. And I am driven a lot by kind of, I'm driven by anger sometimes. <laughs> I'm driven by a desire to fix things and a desire for fairness. And oftentimes I've been driven by a desire for fairness, you know, across the world. It's, it's what drives you to politics and policy. For sure. Right? Going to, yeah, across but the world. here, and I, uh, I was raised by parents who are both college graduates, first generation college graduates, but college graduates, I have a lot of privilege. I'm white, which carries privilege. Um, so I hadn't experienced that much unfairness in my life. And I was angry because this is the first time I had felt like, wait a second. Yeah. Like, just because I'm a woman, just because I'm a mother, does not mean I cannot do just as good of a job. Like, I'm a better lawyer than most men. Um, so that, lead me, that led me to a place of seeking something new. And when I went to these spaces where I was taking classes and not seeing women, then I saw an opportunity. And that's like the optimistic and, and shining part of it, of like, yeah. okay, this is an obvious need. Right. Why is no one doing this? Right, and, and specifically, why is no one doing this and bringing men along with them, too? Because yeah. I never had a desire to just go off and put women somewhere else. Yeah. It was like, we can lead and share and show and bring everyone along with us. Yeah, that's I love the and allies part of the, the way you've described the Riveter and yeah. your, your uh, approach to it. Okay, so that gets us from, uh, let's just say, law to... I have this great business idea. Yeah. But for most of the people who are listening are entrepreneurs or and or creators, self-identified. And this is where like having an idea is certainly a hard part, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's like so many things they could be doing. And I'm gonna distill what you said just into a little nugget here. You're like area of passion, frustration, anger, fear, excitement, opportunity, all these things come together. Yeah. You're like, if I'm spending this much time thinking about it, then there's gotta be an opportunity. Right. But and for, for some, that's really hard because what do I do? I'm interested in so many things. <laughs> you know, that's the good thing that the pressure of creating the diamond, right? Like yeah. A lot of pressure is like, that's where the best stuff is. So you clearly pull on that thread and it said, this is an area of opportunity. Now, help us go from zero to one in your world. Go from not having anything. Mm-hmm. And I want like the details like what oh, was yeah. step one step two because right now you're sitting at home like yeah. I'm just picturing you at a desk with a blank piece of paper staring at the wall like what am I doing yeah what's thing one what do you do so thing one was thinking about it googling everything under the sun in terms of like what is a what is a co-working space what is uh, I like literally never been inside a co-working space before I took these classes um what are other communities geared toward women in, in the United States? Like, what, what exists out there? Um, and then super basic things like how to start a business. I didn't know. Like, yeah. I, you know, you have no idea. 
Um, and, and then I did something that was out of my comfort zone, but that I think made a world of difference. I entered a small business pitch competition. Um, I'm also driven by winning. I like to win. I'm an athlete. Mm-hmm. And I also, throughout my life, have needed an orienting principle to get me somewhere. Like, I'm the person that's like, if I'm out of shape and need to start running again, I sign up for a marathon, right? Because if I don't, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, and so... So like Peloton is my favorite thing on earth because okay. I have a Peloton treadmill. It's like my big purchase for myself nice. last year. Nice, that's like expensive. That's it is, five a, grand. It's amazing. Yeah, and I use it a lot. And Important it's like that. there are points to win and competitions yeah. to win, and it's it's I can win. So, <laughs> I can win. Did I, I say win, win enough? Win, <laughs> so, win, 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 win. But win, so win. I entered the small business pitch competition. I entered it in August, like right before the deadline, and I like found it on Google. Entered it right before the deadline, and it took me through this process, which said you have to come up with a business plan. You have to build a basic financial model. You have to come up with a name. You have to figure out how to pitch this thing in three to five minutes. Um, I got to meet with mentors. It was through um, kind of a small business community platform. I got to meet with mentors. Um, I thought about different ways to finance the business, what it would look like, how I would make money, um, all of the basics of that. And that all led up to a pitch competition. Um, And that was between August and November of 2016. I was still lawyering, so I was doing this at nights and on the weekends. And uh, it just, it guided me to a place. Um, it's where I came up with the name, The Riveter, because, you know, naming is important. Super. <laughs> Super important. Yeah. And uh, I wanted a name that evoked strong women. But that wasn't the women's place, because this wasn't going to be just the women's place. And... I am also like a history buff and loved World War II in terms of what the history of it. It's this very complex time in American history. Mm-hmm. And one of the complex things that happened is that women went to work in droves by the millions mm-hmm. because the government asked us to. And the icon from that area is Rosie the Riveter with, you know, she's got the we can do it. Yeah. We can do it. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, and they chose Rosie the Riveter because uh, women went to build the machines of war. We built guns, tanks, planes. Um, and with the planes, planes are held together by these little things called rivets. And they put two things together. Um, and I thought, well, the Riveter makes a lot of sense. Rosie is this iconic American woman. We defined the workforce during World War II. And I think women will define the workforce again and can and be leaders. Um, and rivets are putting things together. And I think that the way we get somewhere else is by coming together to do it. And so that's where the name The Riveter came from. Um, and at the time when I was in this small business pitch competition, I, I was always thinking the Riveter, of The Riveter as a small business. In Seattle, where we live, um, one kind of physical location and, and some sort of online community. Uh, and that was very core to it. And I talked a lot about it with my husband, who was very supportive. Um, but he's at Amazon. We've got two little kids. So we're like, I'm going to give up my lawyer's salary. How do we do all of this? Yeah. And I was like, it'll be fine because I'm going to have a small business and I'll be my time will be really flexible. I won't work as much as I did as a lawyer. I mean <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. No, I'm giving away the joke. It's, no, but it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Right? Right. But my and my husband knows me very well. He's like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just yeah, like, good. sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I entered the pitch competition, um, and the pitch competition was held on November 4th, it was a Friday night, and I won. And it was amazing. And I pitched this idea of the Riveter, the one 
you know, the one location with events and workspace and driven to really bring women together who are leaving corporate America to start businesses. Um, and I got a $10,000 check. Whoa. With, yes. Right. That was the prize. It was a lot. Um, and it was amazing. And it was an amazing weekend. And then I sat down and I was like, do I quit my job? Is that what I do now? Is that the next step? <laughs> yeah. um, and I was thinking about it. And sometimes I think like time finds us in some ways because um, the next Tuesday was the 2016 presidential election, which wow. is wild. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's crazy. It's still hard for me to talk about that election, which is crazy. It's a presidential election, but it was really personal, right? Yeah, because, very, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, Hillary lost. And it was, it was the next day that I was like, well, if there's ever a time to do this, it's now. Not just because the world is galvanized around this, but because I am. Yeah. Right? Because I want to define my own destiny. And no one will do it for you. Like, no one will do it for no you. One's and coming no to one's going to open the door for you. Yep. No nope. one's coming to save you. This is a thing that is, like, existentially it sounds harsh to say, but the reality is, like, the reason no one's coming to find you is not because you're not loved and cared for and valuable. It's just because they're busy saving themselves. <laughs> it's so true, <laughs> yeah. right? It's so true. And it's also this, like, you know, when I thought about leaving the law, if I didn't start a business, I thought about going into politics. And I think politics is super important. And I think that women can make more progress today through business than we can through politics. And I think the more progress we make on the economic side, the more political progress we will make. That and so... Very interesting on ramp to that. That's that is how you know, I made that decision. And I mean, it's deeply personal. I can try to tell this story without crying, but like, I told you, I'm a, like a presidential buff, right? I yep. love this stuff. And when I was a little girl, I would ask my mom, can a girl be president? And my mom would say, sure she can. And I'd say, but look at my book. There's not a single. There's no one in here, right? None yeah. of these girls are president. And, I, and, my mom, and I, my mom would tell me they can be, it will happen. You know, it, a girl will be president. Maybe you'll be president, right? She would just like encourage me all the time. And at the time of the 2016 election, I had a two-year-old and a five-month-old, six-month-old. And in Washington State, we vote by mail. And so I have a picture of me holding my daughters voting for Hillary. And I thought, they will never ask me if a girl can be president because yeah. the first president they will ever remember will have been a woman. Mm -hmm. And that is, that means the Boom. world. Yep. That's it, right? Like, that's, that's the thing. And so when she didn't win, it was just like, oh my God, yeah. right? And it's hard for me to engage in this presidential election yep. because I feel so, it's just there's so much there, yeah. right? And so if, if a woman doesn't win this time, Sloan will be, the next election will be, what, in 20, 24. 24. Yeah. Sloan will be 10. She'll be in it. My oldest will be in it, right? She'll yeah. be asking me the same questions. And I don't know how to answer it. Yeah. Right? So, so I quit my job. So I quit my job. Um, and I got to start getting into this. I need to do this thing. And this thing, not only is it good for me, but it's good for women. And it might even be good for women in politics. Basically, is that the... Well, yeah. I mean, think, like, think, about, think about who we respect in American culture who we put faith in. We put faith in the dollar a lot in this country. I mean, yeah. we really do, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, lot of debate around whether Trump was a good businessman, but he was a businessman. Like, that's how we look at him, sure. right? We look at him as a businessman. And that gave a lot of America um, a base to respect him, a base to support him, a base to say, well, surely he'll be great at the government, he was great at business. 
Um, you know, Bloomberg gets in the race right now, and everyone's like, great businessman, and he is. I don't think there's a ton of debate around that. And, and he's right in, right? Um, and I, like, I just think we put a lot of stock in that, and we haven't seen a ton of examples of women leading big companies or women starting unicorns, right? And mm -hmm. we need to see it to make women in power more normalized. And the more we see women in power normalized in business, the more it can become normal in politics, the more it can become normal everywhere. It's hard to be what you can't see. It's super hard to be what you can't see. That drives a lot of what I do. And it drives a lot of how I talk about what I'm doing, which has been something I didn't know that I would do a lot of when you start <laughs> company. there we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think, I think women in power is still something we are deeply uncomfortable with in America. And we have to find a way past that. I'm very comfortable with it. Very, like, seek it. That's uh, great. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I do think, like, the interesting thing is I think generationally we're getting more and more comfortable with it. Yeah. But the people in power in many ways, which are still largely white men. Yes, for sure. Um, and a lot of them older white men are not as comfortable with it. And so, it's like, it's this thing of, like, I don't want to wait for a generation, or I don't want to wait one more generation mm -hmm. because, like, this is my time. Um, and I often get asked if I'm doing this for my daughters. And I am, and I'm also doing it for me. Yeah. Right. Like it's, I'm still here. Right? I've got a lot. Left. <laughs> yeah, I've got a right. lot of time left, and and I want it to be a time of progress. Um, well, thank you for that recap. That was powerful, and I think specifically, um, there is a lot of personal stuff in there, and I think whether or not that is, if you're listening or watching, whether that's your shtick or not, what is indelible. Part of that conversation is the part that, the, how important the you part of what you just said is in the thing that you're making. Yeah. And a lot of people I find are chasing a market opportunity or their friend had a good idea for mm -hmm. business or isn't this a, th a thing that where people can make a lot of money? And I'm just on the sidelines of their life going like, yo, don't do that. <laughs> like, that's not the thing. And when I hear you talk about the why behind your work, yeah. to me, it's just, there's just, it's so clear. It's like laser focused. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing too is, so I didn't know what it would be like. I still am like, would I have done it if I'd known what it would be like? <laughs> Look at the dark circles under my eyes. It's like, just you don't know. This like, is what you want. Yeah. There's plenty of it. Like, are you sure you want this out? <laughs> it is not for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I do know this, that like when I'm sitting on my bathroom floor crying and I want to quit, I don't because I care very deeply. Mm -hmm. And that if I was doing something I didn't care so deeply about, I might not get up off the bathroom floor and go to work. Because it's nearly impossible. Yeah. And it doesn't stop being nearly impossible. Right. Which is the one thing I think when I started, I was so uncomfortable and it was so hard. And I was like, it'll get easier. Yeah. I'll feel less uncomfortable. And then I was like, wait oh, a minute. I'm no. three years in here. I feel the <laughs> yeah. same. And I now understand that, like, yeah. at five, at like year five, it will feel just as hard and yeah. I will feel just as uncomfortable. Yeah. And same at year 10. And that's okay, though. I mean, you get used to that. You um, do get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. You do. But the discomfort doesn't go in the way. You're yes. just like, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah. <laughs> and like you make a mistake and you're like, I'll never do that again. And then like six months later, <laughs> you're, you're like, like, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I just stepped in the <laughs> same <laughs> pile. Or like, here I am again. Uh -huh. um, and Life does a good job of bringing back the things that we yeah. don't fix. 
It does. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things about entrepreneurship is it has made me the most self-aware I have ever been. I know now I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm bad at. Mm -hmm. Like it's so clear to me. I know like I know what I do when I get afraid. I know, like, I, I know I, yeah. I, because I have, you get in so many crazy situations yeah. that like you see how you react and you learn and you do the same thing every time. It's just a variation of it. And uh, that's been interesting to learn, to become that aware of who I am and how I act. This is just, a, to me, this is a beautiful arc, your life and the, we're getting tactical. Like I entered the pitch competition, I mm -hmm. Googled, I did all these yeah. things. So I want to go back to that now and pick up you have a ten thousand dollar check. You don't have a job. Yep. What yes, you, what? and I made a little bit more than ten thousand dollars a year as a lawyer. Yeah, so just, there's a disconnect. <laughs> yeah, just a little gap in funding there. Yeah. But yeah. What did you do next? Because I'm again, I keep putting myself back into I, the hearts and minds of our watchers and listeners, and they're like, they're hooked right now, and they're like, yeah. great, I'm I'm taking notes, I'm mm -hmm. doing these things. Now I have a check, but you still haven't actually done anything. Yet. I haven't done a thing, right? And I'm sitting there with this check of like, I can't spend this money until I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. When will I know what I'm doing? Right? And there's that question. Um, so the lawyer in me was like, okay, let's go about this methodically. Like, let's form a corporation. Take step one. Because you have to have a corporation to have a bank account to deposit the check. Mm -hmm. so it's very basic. <laughs> um, and it was at that point that I made the central decision that has driven my life since then. Um, I called a friend of mine who was a startup lawyer and I said, I have this idea, company's called The Riveter, this is what we're going to do in Seattle, should I form an LLC or a C-Corp? And he's like, you should do an LLC, I'll get you like some forms you can fill out, I'm too expensive, I'm not your lawyer. I'm like, yeah, obviously, I'm not paying you to do this, but could you guide me in the right direction? Um, and then this guy called me a couple days later and he said, can we get a beer? I want to talk to you about your idea. And I was like, sure. And in my mindset, I was like, he's going to tell me this is a terrible idea. Like, he's been <laughs> stewing over this for two days. And he's like, and he's like How done. do I tell my yeah. dear friend, this right. is, you are dumb. You're going to exactly, blow right? your, yeah. So we meet up for a drink and we sit down and I was like, what's up? And he's like, you know, I've been thinking about your idea and just like, why are you building one of these and why are you doing this just in Seattle? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, like quite literally, why are you building one? Why don't you build 50, build 100, do this all over the country? And I was like, oh, well, I don't have an MBA. He's like, you, that was your answer? That was my answer. I was like, I don't have an MBA. Like, I don't have business experience. He's like, have you ever Googled the founders of a lot of like the very <laughs> valuable startups in this country? And I was like, no, I've never done None that. of them have MBAs. <laughs> yeah. He was like, nobody, <laughs> no one went to business school. And I was like, really? I was like, so, did, but they worked for other startups, big companies. He's like, no. He's like, most people just have an idea and start a company and just go for it. And I was like, oh, well, I just don't, you know, we talked about it. He told me what venture capital was. <laughs> it's, really? very, it's very precious. Like I really, I mean, I, when I say I don't, don't have a background in this, I did yeah. not have a background. And I'd been very focused on building a small business. So I'd been looking at small business sources of funding and thinking of it that way. So I go home. And is he telling you about venture capital in, in your meeting? He's like, yeah, he's like, this, this is what, because like, I was like, how would I? How do I pay get, for all these how things. How do I get and, some of that? Yeah, yeah. And, but I would, and, but not how I get it. At a base level, how would I pay to do this? Like, yeah. I don't have millions of dollars. Um, so he told me about venture capital and, and all, all the things in that world, you know, over a couple of drinks. Mm -hmm. And I went home and I got on my laptop and 
Googled my new laptop because my work laptop was gone. So I like had to go get right. you know you laptop. Used One thousand of the ten thousand dollar <laughs> pitch competition that you won to buy a new laptop. So I get a laptop and I go home and I Google and I Googled some founders. Like I Googled Adam Newman. Mm-hmm. I Googled um, Mark Zuckerberg. I just I Googled some founders and I was like, oh, I have a lot more experience than these people had. Right. Right. I was like, well, if they could do this, why can't I do it? If I've been in law and I've been in politics and I've been yeah, and I was like, I know how to ask people for money. I can raise venture, which you know, small gap there, but kind of a big gap. Yeah. Um, asking for money for a political candidate and raising venture capital, but you know, I really thought about it, and I was like, and I thought about my network. I thought about how I'd worked in politics and community organizing, and those principles are core to who I am. And I thought, if women in Seattle need this, women everywhere need it. And I might think that I shouldn't be the person to raise my hand and do it, but why not? Like why? If not me, who? If not now, when? Exactly. Um, and so, you know, my husband was home that night. He traveled a lot. And he was home that night. And I said, what would you think if instead of building one Riveter, like I built Riveters all over the country. And he looked at me and he's like, I think you've already decided that's what you're going to do. And he's like, so if you're going to do it, do it well. Wow. Amazing partner. He's amazing. And, um, and so I made the decision then that I would build a company across the country about you know five hours after hearing the term venture capital for the first time. <laughs> um, but it is all to say, right, that I tell that story, and I think it's so important because we talked about this. You can't be what you don't see. And I hadn't seen women starting venture scale companies. I hadn't seen women building these enormous companies with billions of dollars you know, in Inc, an entrepreneur. Like I just hadn't seen it. I certainly hadn't seen mothers doing it with young kids. And I think that's part of the reason it didn't occur to me that I could do it. And so it was a guy that told me I could do it and then a guy that validated that I could do it, right? And I think it's really important to note that and I think about it a lot because I want to live in a world where I could wake up and think I could do that because I am just as qualified. I have just as much grit, just as much hustle. And so I can do it. You know, at the time I didn't know that women receive 2% of venture capital funds. I didn't know that I was choosing the hardest thing Right. Um, but but I chose it. And I think that's uh, that's the point is making the choice. I quit my job. I chose to do what I was going to do. And I did it. I started. I could have thought about doing this forever. Mm-hmm. I could have thought about doing it for another six months and I would have lost the opportunity or it wouldn't have been the right time. Um, it was just two and a half years ago. Right. Like it's not or three years ago now that I left. It's actually three years ago this week. Whoa. That was my last day of lawyering. Whoa, that's where I look into the lens and go, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> like that, yeah. this week. This week. Yeah, the great thing about social media is it reminds you of <laughs> yeah. those milestones. This time, like, three years ago, yeah. you were- I was were, turning in my badge. You were turning in your badge and yeah. you had a $10,000 check from a pitch competition. Yeah. And just again, for the tacticians out there listening, watching, like our audience, they want to do what Amy you're doing. So you win this pitch competition. Yeah. You, you have a conversation with your friend who's like, "Why is this a Seattle only thing? Why isn't this a global thing?" And you're right. watching WeWork and Adam. Yeah. You know, you know, basically raise billions and billions of dollars. Billions, all the billions. Right, all of them. Yeah. And you're sitting here. I want a pitch competition. Keep walking me down the path. Like, what's yeah, the next and, and it's, thing you I mean, do? it is like, it is like, it's really important to talk about all the nuts and bolts because it's not, this is why I'm, yeah, yeah. Like, and I do, I think this is like beautiful. Your, the personal, the why, the hard part, there's the women, the, the, uh, lack of opportunity, the playing through that. 
And there's also the, and so I did this. And so I, so keep telling. So what I did, um, after I made the decision to build this around the country is I, uh, I incorporated the Riveter. I chose a C Corp, which is what you should do if you want to build a national scale company that spans many states. Mm -hmm. Um, to do it in Delaware, or did you just? I did it in Delaware. Okay, this is a where you well-known thing. Corporate company. Yeah. Um, and then I made a spreadsheet. So I went back to how I raised money for politicians, and I would sit down and make a spreadsheet of everybody I knew that I thought could afford to give to a politician, and then I would write down how much I thought they might want to give, and then I would ask them for double. That was how I raised money for candidates. Um, so I sat down with the spreadsheet and I said, who do I know that could potentially invest in a startup? Like $5,000, $10,000, $50,000, um, $100,000. The personal list of people I knew was not that long, but I made that list. And then I started reaching out to those people um, and scheduling coffee dates or phone calls if they live somewhere else to call them and tell them about my idea. I didn't immediately ask them for money, but I was kind of socializing what I wanted to build and that I would be raising money. and. Um, do you have any ideas? Yeah, do you yeah. have any ideas of people to talk to? And you can kind of gauge if they were interested, if they thought it was stupid. I mean, I had some people say, that is ridiculous, right? And I had some people want to invest money before I asked them to, and a lot of people in the middle. And then the other thing I did um, is I went onto the internet and started Googling like Seattle angel investors. Because in every city, there are people who invest in a number of startups. Like it's something that they do. Mm -hmm. They make early stage investments. In Seattle, there's probably 10 or 15 people that are kind of well-known for it. I'd never heard of any of them, but the, the internet told me who they were. And I took those names, put them in my spreadsheet, and then I went on LinkedIn, and I put their names into LinkedIn. And I found if I had a second or third connection to them. I put that second or third connection into my spreadsheet, and then I would reach out to the middle person and say, hey, can we get coffee? I want to tell you about an idea. And I would schedule coffee dates with that middle person. And during that coffee date, I would say, I saw on LinkedIn that you're connected to Joe. I'd really like to meet Joe. I know they inv Joe invests in early stage companies. Would you be willing to introduce me? And then if they said yes, I would follow up with an email that they could forward to Joe. Thanks so much for our conversation. Glad you liked the idea. Let me know if you have any feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Would love to meet Joe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they would forward it on to Joe and Joe would say yes or no to meeting me. Most people said no. Um, and then if I got that meeting with Joe, then I would go sit down, have coffee, and talk to him about my idea. It is a very tedious process. Very manual. It's too. very manual. It's not exciting. It's hard. You hear no constantly. It's exhausting. And you have to treat it like a full-time job to get yeah. through it. Um, and I raised almost $700,000 in three months through a combination of people I knew and largely through Seattle area angel investors. Um, some of the money came in a weird way. Uh, the other thing I did, other than this very manual spreadsheet, is I started talking about my idea to everyone, to every random person. Um, I was at my two-year-old was in like fake preschool, like a, like a fake preschool class for two hours, <laughs> once a month, once a week. And um, I went to it with her one day, and I was talking to another mom in the classroom, and I was telling her what I was doing. And she said, oh, you have to meet my husband. He's a serial entrepreneur. And I was like, oh, obviously I had no idea. Um, so we sat, I sat down with her husband like three days later on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Because that's the other thing. When you're raising money, you just go whenever, yeah. wherever people will talk to you. Yep. Um, and we sat down at 7 a.m. for coffee on a Saturday. And I started telling him about my idea. And he's like, well, we would like to invest $25,000.
And I'd love to connect you to a lot of my other investors that invested in me. And I was like, great. That, so that conversation at preschool ultimately led to $225,000 of investment in my pre-seed round. Wow. Right? Like, yeah. And it's just like, what if I'd never Taking brought it up? Taking the 7 a.m. meeting, yeah. Right. Or, or brought it up to the woman at preschool. For sure. I wouldn't have known that her husband was Getting the other people excited. To me, this is yeah. I constantly in the, the advising that I do, or people are like, I've got a great idea. I don't want to tell anybody to do my idea. I'm like... Trust me, man. No one has the time to do your thing. <laughs> Most and people, ninety nine percent of people, don't yeah, care about your thing, don't. let alone like would do it the same way you would. Right, and, and you'll just tell, tell, and you'll just do it better. Yeah, tell so, everybody yeah. you know about your exciting thing. Yeah, tell everyone um, because those people open doors for you. Mm-hmm. And so I raised that round between January and March third. Mm-hmm. I remember the date, um, which is fast. That is really fast, fast to do it in two yeah, months. Of course, super fast. But I worked 60, 70 hours a week. I was like, I'm getting this done. Because I wanted to build it. Like, yeah. I wanted to build the thing, and I needed money to build the thing. Yeah. And I did some crazy things, too. So this was, you know, I started right after the holidays, ended March 3rd. And like on February 14th, I signed a five-year lease for the first Riveter with you know, tens of thousands of dollars of rent a month. Wow. And I was like, I got it. And I signed a personal guarantee on the lease. Like I put my house up as collateral. Been there. <laughs> I mean, but it, so that moment, in that moment, yeah. like that's the one way door. Yeah. And like the amount of conviction that you have to have, and if you're married, your partner has to have. Yeah. It's everything. This building we're sitting in, Kate and I personally guaranteed the lease on this building. Yep. And you, like, you carry that. The, <laughs> chase the human and Kate the human, yeah, carry it. Yeah. You carry it, like you carry it every day. For sure. Right, and... The lease is like, if it's whatever thousand times however many, 10 years, that is the bill. I know exactly how much personal (laughs) guarantee I have left on my first Riveter. There you go. And, um, yeah. yeah. So this, what you end up having is the start of your business. And this, now, let's do a massive leap. Because again, this is for the benefit of the people watching and listening, they are loving your story as a mother of four who has oh by the way also in the middle of all you have this a couple of kids right? i mean i found out i was pregnant december 31st like leading into this God. okay there's plenty going on we'll just leave it at that and then but i also want to fast forward now so where are you all in your fundraising cycle what's your sort of yeah. evaluation give us the jump from yeah, you raised 700 so, grand from friends and family to now what's happening. In so we've life. raised a total of 21.5 million okay. uh, to grow the company um, in, in three different rounds, with, including that $700,000 round. Um, we have nine riveters in six states and seven cities. We have 13,000 members across the country. We've hit a $10 million run rate and then some. Um, like, We've grown, and yeah. it's been a lot over the past two and a half years. Clearly. Um, a, congratulations. Thanks. B, I want to shift the conversation from the tactical and the financial to the emotional and the spiritual. So, yeah. what? Take, take a sip yeah, of let me water. take a sip. Stre- <laughs> you want to stretch out? Do we, take a, do we take a bio break here? So, let's talk about the you putting a flag in the ground for women entrepreneurs and their allies in this time, in this space, like what does it, what does it mean to you personally now? So is there more drama than you want to go wrong with that? Or is it fueling your fire 
Is it helping grow the business? It fuels the fire, it helps grow the business, and it's terrifying. So when I started The Riveter, The Riveter is about riveters, right? Mm -hmm. It's about working women and allies who want to change the world. Um, I didn't have a concept of how much The Riveter would also be about me as a founder. Yeah. I probably should have and, you know, understood more that the founder is very tied to the product and our story matters mm -hmm. to people. And my story matters a lot to people because there are not a lot of mothers having young kids um, and starting big companies. We don't see a lot of it. Yeah. It's not something we really talk about culturally either. Like in corporate America, it's very much like I felt like I couldn't be a lawyer and a parent at the same time. Like I didn't talk about being a parent at work, you know, all of these things. Um, and when I started the Riveter and we grew a platform, um, I decided to share more of my life so that if it could provide anybody with that idea that you can do it, yeah. like you can watch me do it, like you can do it too, right? I'm from Ohio. I drive a minivan. I've got lots of little kids, <laughs> you know, like it's possible. Yeah. And that would be meaningful to people because I had wanted to see it. It was what I was seeking when I was trying to understand how to navigate the work world. And so, but the thing that I didn't think about when I made the decision to start sharing my life more was the risk. Um, like I am making a public statement that working women can be mothers and be powerful entrepreneurs, but what if I fail? Does that mean that I'm this really negative statement that, see, she said working moms could do this and they can't. Motivation some? Yes, I am motivated by fear. <laughs> like, wow. it is, I mean, it is motivation, but it's like, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think it's, it's really interesting because when you have a certain degree of success or you get going, I think a lot of people around you think, well, you've done it. You're successful. You don't know how the story ends. Like, I don't know how the Riveter story ends. Right? It's just beginning. Yeah. Like, we are at the very beginning. Like, that I know. And a lot of different things could happen. There could be a lot of different outcomes. I know what I believe and I know where we're going. But, you know, stories weave and bob and things change and there are different mm. chapters. Yeah. And um, so I, I don't, like, I don't want to ruin it for other people. Yeah. But, well, I guess embedded in there is something that I, to me, is a, is a I want to learn from this conversation with you. And we sat next to each other on the plane on the way back on the nerd bird from San Francisco <laughs> to Seattle, had our conversation. I told you everything I know about venture capital. Yeah. And then we met as a follow-up, like good, bad, the ugly, and you're clearly on your way. Um, the number one thing that I want to learn, and this is selfish perhaps, but I know, again, the listeners and watchers right now, I think my hope is that this will help some subset of them. You are so clear in your vision about helping women in the workplace and allies. Yeah. How can the people who are not women in the workplace be allies? Show up. I mean, it's really, none of this is rocket science. I mean, I think um, investors need to fund women. Like women are woefully underfunded. Not just in venture where we, where we receive 2% of venture capital dollars, but also in small business dollars. Women get um, four percent of small business loan dollars. Wow, I, I read the thing that I believe you said there are more Fortune 500 CEOs named John than there are Fortune 500 women CEOs. Yes, that's true. There are also separately more Fortune 500 CEOs named James than there are women CEOs. Wow. Yeah. Let that think in for just a second. Like, 
when I, yeah, that is bonkers. Yeah. And so I think funding women, I think acknowledging pattern recognition and implicit bias, like we are affected by the patterns we see. If we see, you know, male CEOs over and over and over again, that's what we think a CEO looks like. I had an investor once say to another investor and, and this other person told me later when they didn't fund me, just, I know CEOs and she's not a CEO. Right, like what does that even mean, yeah, first of all? Right, right, that's why I have nothing yeah, to say. Like, so I, just, and, I don't know what to do with my hands. Right, so like you just have to like acknowledge it and then try not, and then try to move past it, right? Like we can't, under, we can't move past something if we don't acknowledge it, that it's happening. Yeah. Uh, like we all have unconscious bias, we have to acknowledge sure. it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then I think the other thing is stand shoulder to shoulder. Like we are all better together. The wage gap is not a woman's issue. So most men in America over the age of 30 are married to women. Mm-hmm. women don't receive the same dollar as a man. And so if your wife isn't paid an equal dollar, that affects your household's bottom line. Everyone should care about that, right? Like the average, there's this interesting math I was doing earlier this year, that like the wage gap, what does it cost a woman or like with an average salary over the cost of an average career? And it costs almost half a million dollars of lost wages. For most people in this country, that's a different life. It is an entirely different life. That is multiple houses, mm-hmm. college educations, right? And like that affects families. It's very real. It affects people's kids. It affects everything. So standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, how do we just make sure there's equal pay? And it's not like, it's not some like scientific formula we need to come up with, right? Yeah. You need to like do an analysis at your company if people are paid equally, if they have equal experience for an equal job. And then if they're not, fix it. Mark Benioff did it at Salesforce. So one of his executives, Cindy Robbins, came to him and said, we've got a pay gap problem. And Mark Benioff, who's a good guy, said, we don't have a pay gap problem. I'm a good guy. I'm a good CEO. Like, I wouldn't do that. But then Cindy challenged him and said, let's do the analysis. And he said, yes. And the result was there was a massive pay gap problem. And so Benioff spent millions of dollars fixing it. And the interesting thing is they have to look at it every year because they acquire companies. It brings back a pay gap problem with the new acquired companies or just things happen. Right, and the pay gap. Every individual manager or department or whatever because of the bias, yeah. Right, and so taking that on and fixing it, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is really important. Um, And then I also think one thing that can really radically change corporate America and gender disparities is parental leave. Um, We talk a lot about maternity leave. We need parental leave and we need men to take it. We see the best outcomes in countries that have mandatory paternity leave because it signals in culture and work that men are equal in parenting it is not the woman's job. So brilliant. It's just, but well, thank you for sharing. Like those are things, those are tactical things that we mm-hmm. can do reasons why, if you weren't convinced when you first started listening. Um, and then I guess the last thing I, I I'm keeping you longer than I said, I was going to keep it's you okay. happy. Okay. Uh, but what's the experience inside a riveter for the people who are curious and what what kind of that's another way of saying what kind of community are you yeah. aiming to create for people who are listening that might be interested so the community we're aiming to create is really intentional so it's a culture built upon inclusivity so everyone belongs there regardless of where they live of how much money they make of what they look like of how old they are what their job is so we have members who are lift drivers we have members who are executives of fortune 500 companies We have moms who've taken years off and are trying to find a way back into the workforce. We have, you know, single men who 
really believe in equality for women. We have you know, all sorts of people. And we're really built on the premise that everyone belongs there and everyone has a place. And whatever you need, that's what we want to help you with. And so we have programming on everything from you know, social media 101 if you're building a business to um, how to deal with caretaking of your parents and navigate work. Right? Like caretaking of your parents, it's a very real thing that a lot of Americans are dealing with. For sure. Right? And we don't talk about it a lot at work. Yeah, yeah. And that idea of like, we need to be whole humans to be good at our job, I think. We can't separate these pieces out. That's why Creative Life has the enterprise product. Mm-hmm. So like literally, if people are like realizing, we need to invest in, and not, we're going to invest in you, and we're going to give you access to how to be better at pivot tables in Excel. Yeah. This yeah. is like how to be a better human. Physical, right. emotional, yeah. like communication, obviously creativity is mm-hmm. a huge foundation for us, but it's, it's phenomenal that people don't think that they would invest in the whole human and that they're somehow going to get right. the results that they want. You know? And that's when, I mean, it's interesting, like from the other side of it, right, and building a company, it's something I have to think of a lot. And it's a struggle being a startup and wanting to do all of these things for your team and not having the money. And so yeah. what can you do? Like, how can you be a good leader? How can you build a good culture? When I was a lawyer, I never managed people. Like litigators are project-based, it's like a SWAT team. You go in, you do yeah. the job, you get out. The very clear objective is to win. And I had like once a year, I would have a performance review for 10 minutes. And that's not the world of a company. It's not the world of a good culture. And so I've had to really kind of try to learn how to do that. And it's really hard. And that is the thing that like, that's what keeps me up at night. Totally. No instruction manuals for this. Like being a parent, right? I, I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but I've heard that it's like so no one wrote a good handbook for no. doing the thing you're trying to do. No, no one, no one did. And then, and I also like, I was raised in a professionally in a culture of like be stoic, like people are aggressive. Um, there's no real authenticity to it. And in building the Riveter, if we are out there trying to build this culture externally to change things for women. Like I had to find a way to be a good and authentic leader internally. And it's hard like to be vulnerable. It's mm-hmm. really hard to be vulnerable with people that you're leading because you don't want them to be scared. Mm-hmm. But they're part of the journey and they want to hear the story. They want to know where you are. And so it's taken a lot on me to say, okay, I'm going to be brave enough to share with them the bumpy parts, the hard parts where I don't know what the hell I'm doing in the hopes that we can be a team and come through it together. Speaking of sharing your story, I want to say thank you for sharing yours with us. Um, what an amazing story. Before you go though, I gotta let people know the coordinates, like what's the best way for them to find and follow what you're Absolutely. doing yes. um, and how uh, the folks who are on the Creative Lab platform here to know how to get you. Yes, so you can visit us online at www.theriveter.co. We have Riveters in Seattle, Portland, LA, Denver, Dallas, Minneapolis, and Austin. Um, Good cities. Yes, they're amazing cities. We think there's so much opportunity in the middle of the country. Yeah, that's cool. Um, And then you can visit us on social media at the Riveter CO. And digital programs as well as physical for people who aren't in those cities? Yes, we have digital programs and digital community where you can really talk about the hard parts of work and find community to guide you through those pieces. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really, really really grateful for coming to be on our platform here. Thank you. And uh, for those folks who are not, go go check it out. It's amazing. And of course, you can 
your your energy like i want to go out and start it. like just go do it but thanks yes. a lot for being on the show really grateful and for those folks at home see it again hopefully tomorrow all right that about wraps it up but uh, hey before you bounce two quick things um actually i'm gonna go three quick things thing one a thank you so much for being a part of this community and i'm not quite sure how you you landed on this podcast it doesn't matter to me the fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome i feel uh honored to be in your ears right now and that uh you've paid attention to what i've been doing what creative live has been doing for some time and whether it's been a day or 10 years i just want to say thank you it's also really important to know on the back side of that that i i do a lot of responding to comments so hit me up on you know direct message me on on instagram or twitter or at me i try and respond as much as possible so let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here let's try and do it some somewhere out there in on the internet land that's thing one thing two again i'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work but please go check out i'm at chase jarvis or slash chase jarvis or whatever on all the platforms and it's really important to me also if you wouldn't mind checking out creative live it's something that not only myself but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye